Hello, this is Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 174. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is hair color cosmetic chemist extraordinaire, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. Hi, Beauty Brains. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about why is the prescription azelaic acid so expensive? Do cosmetic products expire? Is petroleum in skin products like Aquaphor bad for you? And what's the difference between moisturizers and hydrators? Plus, we'll cover uh, stories that we found interesting in the cosmetic industry. Should be a fun show, but first, we should say hello to Valerie. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. How was your time in Florida? You know, I had a lovely time in Florida. It was not, it's always nice to get out of the wintertime and into the sun of Florida. I got to speak on the topic of clean beauty, which uh, seems to be all the rage these days. Was the crowd receptive to it? Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they were. Did you know that the term clean beauty has overtaken the term natural cosmetics in terms of Google searches per month? Oh, that's really interesting. Clean beauty is nice because it gives you the, you can use synthetics, right? So you get all this, the fear mongering of naturals, but still you can use synthetics. Well, what I like about it, and this is true to natural beauties to some extent, is clean beauty is really defined by the brand. So what do they define as clean? What do they, you know, even natural define as natural? But I think that's sort of interesting that every brand can have their own take on what they allow and don't like about products exactly i mean on some level you can do that with natural but people do have a sense of what natural already means whereas clean nobody really knows what clean means so it can mean anything well cool i'm, I'm glad your talk was well liked and i can't wait to hear it this fall in california that's right i'll be there in september all right shall we move on to beauty news <laughs> So here's a story that I that came across my desk. It was about microplastics being banned in uh, the EU. In the story, the EU was proposing to ban microplastics in products like cosmetics, detergents, and agricultural products. The concern with the microplastics, of course, is that they get into the environment and they mess with the waterways and have a negative impact on uh, wildlife, and some people say even on people. The article stated that 36,000 tons of microplastics are released into the environment every year. It sure does sound like a lot of those little beads, right? Yikes. Then they go on to say that this ban is going to force the cosmetic industry to reformulate over 24,000 formulas, which sounds pretty high to me. I did not realize uh, these microbeads were in that many formulas in the EU. And they also said that it would cost the sector more than 12 billion pounds a year in lost revenue, which that didn't seem right to me either. Well, is that lost revenue from not being able to sell the microplastic beads into these products or from the lost products themselves? Because I, I think people will still need the products, right? What the industry was saying is that there's no good replacement for those plastic microbeads in the products. And so... The EU is banning an ingredient without there being a substitute ingredient that they can use. 
the industry also goes on to further say that the, the ban is not good because there's no scientific evidence that the microplastics uh, that are found out in the environment are coming from cosmetics. Hmm. I mean, I personally have no problem with this ban of these microplastics. I mean, they don't seem like a good idea to me anyway. And the thing is, I don't really think you get much of a benefit out of them. I know they're put in, say, exfoliating products, and I just think it's a gimmick. I don't think you really get much benefit from them. I don't, maybe it's just me. I don't, I don't know. I've looked for evidence of them giving you a special extra benefit. I just haven't found it. Well, I think there's better exfoliants, uh, first of all, at least for the skin. But in terms of how much marine pollution comes from microplastics in cosmetics, I think it's such a really small fragment. The one aspect about this proposed EU ban that I really like is that it actually goes past cosmetics and goes into detergents and agricultural products and pretty much things that enter the waterways. I like that because I think there are... For example, in toilet cleaners, microplastics that help keep your toilet clean. And I think those provide more of a source of pollution than cosmetics. And I think that information was actually substantiated. I I went to a talk, I think it was uh, Dr. Robert Lockhead. Sure. Did a talk on microplastics a couple years ago at the Scientific Seminar for Society of Cosmetic Chemists in New York. And he was able to substantiate that actually most microplastics come from alternative industries, for example what they clean ship decks with and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it was very interesting that cosmetics is taking a lot of the heat, but it is such a small contributor. Oh, that's right. I, in fact, in the Florida talks, somebody had mentioned that. Like he said, half of all uh, microplastics that get, get used are used to clean as abrasion to clean ships. Yeah, I just don't know why people aren't focusing on all industries and other industries when cosmetics is such a small portion. I mean, I think it's great that all these regulations have come into place because any little bit helps, I guess, if it really is a problem. But I'm just glad to see that the ban is starting to cover more scopes in the EU, the proposed ban. This kind of thing happens to the cosmetic industry all the time, though. Even even in your fair state of California, the California Air Resources Board regulated the heck out of cosmetics uh, with the VOC requirements. And cosmetics make up a very small amount when you compare it to, say, cars. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we get the most news in terms of the Air Resources Board is looking at all industries. But I think cosmetics gets the most news when like, can you believe your your hairspray or your tanning product is depleting the ozone atmosphere. And it's like, well, I I can think about five other industries that are hurting it more. But yeah, it's cosmetics is usually unfairly thrown under the bus with these types of things. All right, Valerie, before we get onto our questions today, while coming up with my presentation, I had to look at, uh, you know, that Goop brand. The Oh, that her actual own uh, beauty brand? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow has the beauty brand Goop. And so they actually are in the clean beauty space. And so I was looking at them. And as I was going through them, uh, I was just looking at some of the products they had, right? And so (laughs) some of the products are very laughable. So it it made me come up with this game. I've got four products here. And I'm going to name off the four products. One of them is a fake one that I made up. And then three of these are actually for sale on Goop. Oh, wait. Wait a second. Wait a second. Not one is fake. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Three are real. Yeah. So I'm going I'm to name... Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm going to name four products. <laughs> Three are real. One is a fake. See if you can identify the fake. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. 
Here we go. First product is a vampire repellent. Mm, a okay. Nice spray. Next one is an organic cotton toothbrush. Okay. Next one is a coffee enema. All right. And finally, there's the Camel Milk Home Delivery Service. Oh gosh, these are really tough. There's uh... three of these. Three of these you can actually buy uh, on the Goop website. <laughs> okay, so part of me wants to say that the fake one is Camel Milk Home Delivery Service, but living in LA, I know that there are all sorts of strange milks from different animals and milk alternatives from the strangest plants where you're like, how did they turn that into a milk? So, oh, I'm gonna leave that one as real because it could be such an obvious fake, but vampire repellent, mm, mm, I'm gonna say the fake one is organic cotton toothbrush. All right, so you believe there is a vampire repellent and in Indeed, you can buy vampire repellent on the Google website. <laughs> um, is it popular in Transylvania? I, that is a good question. Um, indeed, you're correct. The the Camel Milk Home Delivery Service, another product you can get. Uh, oh, on really? Goop. I thought for sure yeah. that one was going to be fake. And, okay. Uh, nope, Camel Milk Delivery. Um, and then finally, the other real one is the coffee enema so you sniffed out the fake one yes uh, oh, organic ding, 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 ding. oh my gosh listen i thought i was going to be wrong i'll tell you why i selected this one because i'm not sure it seems like it could go together but usually you don't want i mean cotton's not stiff right you need these plastic fibers or these synthetic fibers to help kind of scrub away plaque on your teeth so that's why right. i thought well what would be cotton about a toothbrush yes but you know that was not exactly based on nothing the real product was you can buy a 275 dollar silk toothbrush is silk stiff like stiff enough <laughs> to brush your teeth with? I, I do not I, I do not think so but uh, so per, maybe, maybe it's they just use it to make the handle or something I, I don't wow know. wow well that was fun I will say I know a lot of people think we just poo poo a lot on things and yeah sometimes we do I, I know goop is a little ridiculous with her pseudoscience on a lot of stuff I mean they did hire a fact checker allegedly recently um, I will say that I actually have tried a couple of her products just to see what they're about. While there are some crazy things on her website, obviously, I guess if you really enjoy them um, and you like her products, they're worth it. I don't know that I would buy a coffee enema and I, I don't really even like cow's milk, so I'm not sure I'd like camel milk, but I guess it's something for everyone. Indeed. All right, you ready to go on to questions? Yeah. So PV, I think it was PV, uh, or maybe Peewee, I'm not sure, wanted to know why the heck is prescription azelaic acid so expensive? This ingredient has been around for a long time. It's not a patented ingredient as far as I know. So this person is asking about uh, prescription azelaic acid, typically treated, prescribed for rosacea. The brand name of this treatment is Phenacea. It's a 15% azelaic acid 
so I will call it a solution, but it has 15% azelaic acid and it's usually available as a foam or as a cream. And I actually am prescribed the cream, so I know a lot about this type of formula. I've also used the foam, but I can only get it through a prescription um, with my dermatologist. I can't go into a store and buy it over the counter. It's only available as prescription. And the reason it's only available as a prescription is because the azelaic acid is being used to treat a medical condition with rosacea. So a lot of people with rosacea get these bumps on their faces that are actually uh, pustules. So you might think it's just a little zit and it's actually uh, has pus if you were to pop it. And that's from a rosacea breakout. Sometimes I get them uh, all across my cheeks. So I use this uh, prescription twice a day. The azelaic acid, the exact mechanism is not completely known, but in addition to exfoliation, it's a very big molecule, so it's very slow and gentle to exfoliate. It's why you can use it twice a day. But it has this sort of radar for, or a detection for these pustules, and it's able to go into the pustule and eliminate the inflammatory activity that's going on, creating the pustule on the face. So that's typically why it's prescribed through the dermatologist. and. Because again, you're treating rosacea, which is a medical condition, you, it has to be available as a prescription. You can use um, azelaic acid in a formula at a lower percent and it not be prescription, but you can't say it's treating the same things. Right, you can't make any medical claims. Exactly. I also don't think it's as effective in exfoliating the dead skin away like an alpha hydroxy acid is or treating acne like salicylic acid does. It does have a different mechanism and it's not the most efficient if you're looking to, to just do a quick exfoliation on your skin. Like I said, it's a very big molecule. It's very slow. It doesn't work in the same way, but it does go into those uh, pustules and you will see a difference over time in the skin condition in using it. So you're actually only supposed to, as a prescription, put it on the affected area. I sort of put it all over my whole face uh, just because a little does go a long way with the cream, the foam, not so much. It's very hard to spread the foam out, but that is why PV, you have to get it as a prescription and prescriptions in general are just so expensive. I don't think it's cheap as an acid. Like if you go to buy the pure acid, it's pretty expensive per pound that contributes to the price. Also, when you manufacture prescriptions, there's a lot of paperwork and controls put in place. So it's not anyone can manufacture it. It's a very controlled environment with lots of documentation and tracking everything, even beyond how you manufacture cosmetics. So that can also add to the price. Interesting. One of the important things to note there is that since it is a drug, there is evidence that it works. And so you can, you can rest assured that uh, at least at the prescription level, it works. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. It really has improved my skin condition, especially when I get these flare-ups the skin just really loves this acid now if like i said in terms of comparison to ahas and bhas it, it's totally different so if you're looking for that exfoliation it's not really the acid for you but people with rosacea actually can't even really use those types of acids i can't put ahas and bhas on my face without getting a flare-up so you just have to sort of deal with the slow exfoliation 
over time, but you're using it twice a day. All right, fascinating uh, topic there. Uh, but let's move on to the, our next question. Do cosmetic products expire? Uh, Scott had sent in this this email about the product, and essentially what happened with Scott is like he's been using this lip balm for the last 17 years. This Nivea Hydro Care Caring Lip Balm. Then they changed the formula on him. <laughs> Consumers hate it when companies change formulas, you know. Yeah, it's inevitable though. It happens. Regulations change. Ingredients become unavailable. Yeah, and and sometimes companies, you know, they. They want some new news in their in their products because maybe a SKU isn't selling that well, so they'll reformulate and give it a fresh new look. So he had this lip balm he's been loyal to for 17 years, and then they changed the formula on him, and he hates the new formula. So what he did was he went out and he found a big supply of the old formula, and he bought up like 24 samples of this, right? <laughs> so now he's like saying, okay, I've got enough that's going to last till like, through 2020 and he's hoping Nivea bring back the uh, what the the formula but he's wondering are those 24 lip balms that he just bought are they going to last the whole time that's a great question yeah and apparently on the lip balms they say unopened products have a shelf life of at least 30 months from the date of manufacture uh, he couldn't see when the date of manufacture was on the products that he bought but that's that's what he's wondering about. So, you know, we've gotten this question a few times, or a similar question like this, and I don't think we've ever covered on the podcast. Beauty product consumers, of course, they want to know how long product's going to last because they buy it, and unfortunately, there really is no simple answer. You know, there are some things that you can consider when figuring out is a product still good or not. Now, before we talk about the expiration date, uh, it makes sense to first define what we mean by expiring. And when it comes to cosmetics, there are various things that indicate a product has expired. There's just a few questions I like to ask. So the first thing to determine whether something has expired, does it still work? A good indication of whether a product expires or not is if you use it and it doesn't work, then probably has expired. <laughs> if the lip balm, so if this lip balm doesn't make your lips feel good, then the product pretty much is expired and I wouldn't recommend using it. Now, the next question you have to ask, does it have the acceptable aesthetic properties? And for a lip balm, does it taste good? Does it feel good when you put it in or put it on? And even if it's gone past the expiration date that the company has said, if it still feels good and it's still working for you, then it's probably fine to continue using. Yeah, it's like any food in your refrigerator. If you're unsure if it's still, oh, hey, I'm, I'm close to the expiration date on the smoke carton, what do you do? You take it open and you sniff it, right? Or you give it a little taste and you say, is this acceptable to me as a consumer? Does it taste weird, smell weird, feel weird, right? Those are all sorts of things. You would just sort of common sense check and say, I'm going to open this lip balm, and if it feels normal, smells normal, and I still feel like it works, it should be okay to use. The company puts the 30-month, uh, they'll say it's good for 30 months after opening, right? There's, It's not like that 
the day, the 32nd or the 31st month, now that automatically is no good anymore. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, there's no hard date like that. The way that they get these dates is mostly done through stability testing. And stability testing just mm-hmm. involves uh, an experiment where you take a bunch of finished products and you put them at different temperature and environmental conditions. You leave them there over time and then you take measurements on a variety of things like for a lip balm, it would be the hardness of the lip balm or maybe a flavor check, a color check. And so there are a variety of tests that you would do. And as a manufacturer, you have a, a set specification where the product has to meet these numbers or these characteristics. And if it does, then it's still good. If it doesn't, or if it's out of spec, as we say, then it's no good anymore. And so that's kind of how they give the expiration date. Yeah, my company that I, I work at by day, we do three years, and it's not because the product doesn't last more than three years. We just don't bother checking beyond that. So it's not a hard and fast rule that like, oh, if it's older than three years, it's not going to be good. It's just all that we've checked the product for and before we've already moved on. Manufacturers kind of would like to have, and some of the manufacturers want to have short expiration dates because then if the consumer buys it and it expires, then they got to go buy another one, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's a product that the manufacturer has made a ten thousand bottles of, and in a year, in three years, they haven't sold all ten thousand bottles, they kind of want to not to not expire, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then on cons- on the consumer side, consumers, uh, when you buy a product, you just want it to work for as long as you have it, right? Yeah. A- interestingly enough, I have a, a men's hairstyling product that's at least ten years old. <laughs> And occasionally I'll still use it. Uh, you know, it's it's an anhydrous formula and it still works. So, uh, you know, this is what makes me a terrible beauty consumer. Because <laughs> <laughs> you still have that hanging on to one. Well, I've even had a product where I go through a lot of products in my shower. I think we talked about this last time that I'm actually on a shopping ban and I have to use everything that's in my own stash before I can bring more stuff home. But gosh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist is so tough. But I've had a product where I've used it one month from a, com- a competitor and I've used other products and then I've gone back to specifically usually their shampoos. I've gone back to a shampoo that two months ago I was using and then in that third month away it's completely separated. So you never know what way it's going to go. So just to sum up the question, while the manufacturer has put that 30-month expiration date on it, if the lip balm still tastes right and still works for you, then it's unlikely that there are going to be any problems with you using it. And so essentially it still works. Of course, if you do have a problem, you probably won't have any recourse with the company since you'll be using the product in a way that's not recommended by the manufacturer. Perry, I do want to mention the only exception to this, which should be followed, are OTC products. So if it were a, a lip balm with a sunscreen in it, an anti-dandruff shampoo, or a sunscreen for the body, the expiration dates on there are generally hard and fast because they can't guarantee the product after that. So just be careful using those products that you can't expect a result. That's an excellent point. If For OTCs, the dates on there are the only thing that they've tested for and say, oh, it still works and it has to work. But after that date, if it's expired, probably should go get a new one. Yeah, and there are a couple websites that you can check expiration dates of your products or date of manufacture. And I don't know how correct they are. I have used them in the past. So every product that you buy does have a lot number on it or a batch code. And that helps the manufacturer tie back 
the specific uh, day and time of manufacturing and all the lot numbers they used of their ingredients and stuff. And you can go to these websites. They sort of have cracked the code. I'll put that in air quotes on sure. batch codes to help you determine when the product was made. There's checkcosmetic.net, checkfresh.com. I have used those in the past to get an idea, mostly on competitor products. Like, hey, when was this made? And again, I, I'm not affiliated with these websites. I don't know how well they work, but you could try going there and looking for Nivea and typing in the batch code to see when they were made. Sure. All right, let's move on to our next question. Jody asks, is petroleum and skin products like Aquaphor bad for you? What's Snow White Petroleum? So petroleum can often be found in your products, either under petroleum jelly, petrolatum. You could also find it listed as mineral oil or paraffin oil. And there are many more other ingredients that are derived from petroleum or benzene chemistry that are used to make synthetic ingredients. Now, of course, no one's pumping pure petroleum in, right? That's That right, doesn't that's, sound like uh, a good idea. So... You, you, you can't do that and like yeah. and you wouldn't do that there's no reason you would do that yeah hashtag not cool so and i actually think it's even banned in the u.s for sure in the eu so no one's doing it anyway i don't even know why they have to say it's banned but i i guess you never know so aquaphor is actually using petrolatum which is derived from petroleum through a series of reactions um, another name for petrolatum is petroleum jelly and this is a mixture of hydrocarbons that is sort of like a, a gel-like ointment, which is used in cosmetics for hydration and emolliency. Yeah, we talked about that in the show. I think it's show 172 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've talked about it a bit. So there's this big misconception that when people are using petrolatum or petroleum jelly in personal care products, that... It's full of toxic chemicals like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, but we're not using unrefined petrolatum in products. It's very important that as a cosmetic chemist, we're using petrolatum that is a United States pharmacopoeia grade, which means that it's been severely refined to remove any agents, colorants, things that kind of make it funky to sort of standardize the petrolatum that we're using. The United States Pharmacopeia is a published method, it's a publication, so it's not this arbitrary standard of quality and purity of ingredients. It's an actual publication that says, hey, this is how you have to refine it. And this is like the end specification of everything about the product of like what is allowed to be in it and whatnot. So at least from reputable cosmetic brands and cosmetic manufacturers, you're using a petrolatum that has been refined to a United States pharmacopoeia method. The second part of her question, Jody asked, what's Snow White Petroleum? Snow White Petroleum is actually Snow White Petrolatum, and it is a grade of, I always thought it was a really pretty term, which is why I like to use it, um, just because it reminds me of, of course, the Disney film, even though it has nothing to do with it, but Snow White Petrolatum is basically a petrolatum that has been purified into a way to make it as colorless as possible. Yeah, normally petrolatum is comes out as this like yellow sticky mm -hmm. paste kind of a thing. Yeah, and that doesn't look good for cosmetics at all. So they make it white so that it doesn't impact the end aesthetic of your product, and hence they call it Snow White Petrolatum. It's always confusing to consumers to to see the word petroleum and petrolatum. It's kind of unfortunate that the 
two ingredients are so close, closely named. Yeah. Because they're completely different ingredients, and you know, one you can put in cosmetics safely, and one you can't. Yeah, and I, I'd actually be interested. I, I know the etymology is very similar. It'd be interesting to further break down how petrolatum came from petroleum, as they're closely related. But in the Aquaphor products, they're using Snow White petrolatum as a, an OTC ingredient. So the FDA recognizes that petrolatum is a skin protectant that can be used to help heal dry, cracked skin in this case. Well, thank you for that question. We got time for one more question. This one comes to us from Dina. Dina asks, what is the difference between hydration and moisture hydrating and moisturizing? So also, how do moisturizers work and how do they differ from hydrators? We got this question and I I thought it was a bit strange and I think it's because I'm on the R&D side of things. It's hard for a formulator to keep up with these marketing terms. Cosmetic marketers have a tough time differentiating their products, so they come up with these different ways to talk about kind of the same things. Anyway, the terms moisturizing and hydration, they really are terms that can be defined by the company to, to mean kind of whatever they want. They all kind of refer to the same same kind of thing and to the idea of increasing the amount of water present either in the skin or the hair. Now, in investigating what's on the market, so I, I just noticed that some marketers use these terms to differentiate between humectants, which are ingredients that attract water, so they call those the mm-hmm. hydrators, and occlusive agents, which are the materials that will block water from escaping and thereby increase the amount of water in the skin. And so those are referred to as the moisturizers, I guess. But these really aren't scientific terms, I would say. They're more marketing terms. Let's just be more clear here. Moisturizers, as some people define them, are oil-based ingredients, including occlusive agents like petrolatum or mineral oil, and emollients like esters and plant oils. They work by creating this film on the surface of the skin, which theoretically will prevent water from escaping. So they also make the skin feel feel smoother and less dry and a little slippery. Hydrators, on the other hand, are ingredients called humectants like glycerin or hyaluronic acid, and they will absorb water from the atmosphere or from your skin, and then they hold it in place in your skin. You see hydrators and moisturizers advertised in all kinds of different products, things like balms and serums and oils and then even gels. The form of the product doesn't matter too much since it does not really affect the performance that much. It more affects the way that the product is applied. Although creams and balms can be a bit more intensive because you can include more occlusive materials. But the product performance is really the it's the ingredient that matters, not as much the form. The form just affects the experience of applying the ingredients. When I hear the term hydrator and moisturizer used, yeah, as you know, consumer, I understand that they are kind of doing the same thing. It's creating this perception that my skin is not dry, it's supple, it's young and flexible and and looks hydrated and healthy. But I think especially with the K-Beauty texturizing products coming out where we're used to feeling these different formats, if today walking into Sephora, I saw a moisturizer versus a hydrator, I would just feel like you know, a moisturizer is what my old perceived skin effect would be, whereas hydrator, you feel the splash of water on your skin. You feel your skin becoming more 
hydrated, more moisture content, whereas moisturizer to me is sort of that old fashioned oil based feel, lotion, sure. cream, balm, butter, etc. Whereas hydrator yeah. is almost experiential in the way that your skin is receiving moisture content. You know, if you use a, a humectant hydrator, you actually probably will see a more immediate improvement in the skin. So if you use a moisturizer, it's going to take a little bit longer for the skin to improve. And so that's why when you create skincare products, you should include both hydrators and moisturizers. Something for the short-term game and the long-term game. That's a good formulation strategy. <laughs> exactly. All right, Valerie, that's all the time we have for questions now. Uh, what do we got on the show for next time? Next time, we're going to go back and revisit the SPF story that we talked about last week, you know, with the sprays where you sort of spray it all over your face and sure. everyone else in the world finds that repulsive. So we're going to look back <laughs> and talk about sprays. I know spring break is coming up and everyone's going to be packing their sunscreen. So I thought it'd be really fun to take a look at the current regulatory landscape, product options that are out there and maybe even talk about some products that we're really enjoying right now. Yeah, and we got a couple of new audio questions, so we'll be sure to include those. If you want to ask a question about the beauty products, you can click the link in the show notes or, or record one on your phone and send it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We do prefer the audio questions because, you know, it just works better on a podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're just thebeautybrains. And we also have a Facebook page. And the Beauty Brains are on Patreon. So if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. Uh, we're actually trying to move away from any kind of advertising model. And since we don't do paid product reviews, this is the way we can generate funds. Uh, yeah, let's keep things going on here at Brains Publishing. So if you appreciate what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains. And you can uh, look into donating whatever you like. All right, Valerie, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, stopping by. <laughs> Virtually, anyway. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Kittens! <laughs>